Previously on Funny Science Fiction. I don't do that voice. And they said, listen to Carrie Fisher's interviews currently. So, you know, I'm in my car going, YouTube, Carrie Fisher. <laughs> 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 Hello and welcome to the Funny Science Fiction Podcast. The podcast where we use all five of our senses and most of our nonsenses too. Today is Steve Rubin. Steve is an actor, producer, director, and Steve is also an author. We have Steve here today to talk about his encyclopedias of James Bond and The Twilight Zone. Both books offer in-depth information about movies, episodes, and details that you may have likely missed. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being here, Steve. Thank you, guys. Uh, I have to give a disclaimer. I am not an actor. Uh, no pretensions to being an actor there. Um, uh, screenwriter, yes. Producer, yes. Promoter, yes. Author, yes. But acting, no. Well, we're gonna. I'm gonna sue IMDb because they lied. <laughs> That's on me. I wrote that. I blame IMDb though. No worries. No worries. I did act once. I played a school principal in a PSA. I was very good. <laughs> not not too shabby if you do say so yourself, right? I feel like I remember that one. <laughs> All right. So, Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. Actor or not, we're glad to have you. So, Bond. James Bond. That's perhaps the single most influential introduction in human history, in my opinion. That has been mimicked and imitated on and off the silver screen. It's been on TV. It's in books. You know, whatever else. So, Ruben. Steve Ruben. Although you have several books about James Bond, what was the driving force behind the writing of a James Bond encyclopedia? Well, uh, I've always been a huge fan. I got to go back to being 12 years old uh, in my my room. My father comes home from a business trip. He generally was uh, reading Westerns, and I never wanted to read Westerns. I had no interest in reading Westerns. I liked watching Westerns, but I didn't write reading Westerns. One day he plopped a paperback on my desk, Goldfinger. I started to read this book. I was a junior high school student. We called them junior highs in those days, not middle schools. And I was immediately enthralled by Ian Fleming's writing. It had a tremendous influence on me for decades, but I think that um, as I became a writer, I and you're always looking for subjects that uh, Bond was it. I mean, you start writing about Bond. I started writing about Bond in 1977. So let's see, that's uh, 44 years ago, and I'm still writing about Bond. So there are very few subjects you can continue to write about for 44 years. And when Contemporary Books of Chicago approached me in 1990 and said, we've had success with a uh, Marilyn Monroe encyclopedia. We've had a success with an Elvis Presley success, uh, encyclopedia. Could you do a James Bond encyclopedia? Well, I had already done a what was essentially the first behind-the-scenes history of James Bond. It was published in '81, called the James Bond Films of Behind-the-Scenes History. So I had a yeah. ton of I had mm -hmm. a ton of material, ton of interviews, and it's been an organic process ever since. Putting together the encyclopedia, and this is the fourth edition, is just fun. It's just a lot of fun, a lot of work, particularly in finding the photographs, because even though I'm very proud of my prose, when people crack open a James Bond encyclopedia, the first thing they look at are the illustrations. And I had to conduct a worldwide search. 
I believe that because that'd be the first thing I would want to look at because there's so much tied to James Bond that that's mm-hmm. just cool. You know, the vehicles, the gadgets, the, you know, everything else. So that makes sense to me. Um, and, and, that, and that's kind of one of the things I personally love about James Bond is the uh, the mix of realism with the pinch of the unreal, because that's what it seems to be to us, you know, the, the lay folk. And, although, and that, although I will say that it, it has changed dramatically over the years. And I would say during the current Daniel Craig incarnation that Bond is more real than ever. They've really cut back on the, the I won't necessarily call it fantasy elements because even the craziest Bond villains still had a touch of real, realism. But I think that today's audience, if you're going to go see a Bond movie, you're looking for grit and you're looking for real. I don't think you're looking for as much fantasy. No, I completely agree with that. I think, I think the era of Roger Moore was probably the most uh, fantasiful. Um, that fan, fanciful. Fan, anyway, there's a word there that I probably should be using that I probably just screwed up. But fantastical. Let's use that one. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Let's use that one. But I think the Roger Moore era was probably the most fantastical. Um, you know, and now you have, and I think the the more the realism kind of set in with the Pierce Brosnan movies, and then very much so Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig's movies have been almost like a pure grit, you know. Oh, yeah. And so. you, you have to look also at the competition. When Bond debuted in 1963 in the U.S., there was no competition. But today... You've got the Bourne series, sure. Mission mm-hmm. Impossible, even the Kingsman series, which has a touch of the fantastical. You've got even the Fast and the Furious mm-hmm. car chase movies. Yeah. You, know, you got to keep up with them. I, I, I think that uh, uh, there's a lot of imitators out there, and I think that it's getting tougher and tougher to produce a unique Bond movie. No, I, I agree with you. You know, and like I said, I... I I grew up though watching, of course, the Connery and, and the and the Roger Moore era. You know, I really wasn't a fan of the Timothy Dalton's, uh, you know, movies. But one of the things I loved about Bond, like as I was saying earlier, was the pinch of real with the unreal. And it kind of reminds me, in a way, of you mentioned fantasy, but science fiction. You know, there's the gadgets, there's the cars, and with Roger Moore, there was space travel. So, in my opinion, James Bond, James Bond, Bond, James Bond, is low key sci fi. So, in your opinion, what's a sci-fi universe that we might be able to see James Bond slip into as a character? <laughs> That's a loaded question because <laughs> I think that, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of prone to time travel stories. I, those are my favorite subgenre of science fiction. So, Having James Bond go back to uh, an era, an interesting era, would be fun for me. But I do not see James Bond interacting with the Mandalorian, or, no. or Captain Kirk, or or Doctor Who. Uh, no, I, I don't think. Uh, that whenever James Bond veered into a touch of science fiction, and disastrously so at the end of Die Another Day. Yes. where all of a sudden he's driving an invisible car, you know, that was jumping the shark time for me. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's really a good answer for me on that one, because I think that uh, I don't like science fiction and James Bond. I keep them very separate. Okay. 
That's solid. See, the only re- the only way that I could tie it in, because I thought about that before I, I asked you this question, and and the only tie-in that I could find, because I, like you, couldn't find a, a world or a, a sci-fi universe that I thought he would fit into. Star Trek and Star Wars, the two biggies were automatically out. The only one that I could see it possibly working in, he wouldn't be a main character. And that's the Marvel universe. He would have to be an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. like like Agent Coulson, like a British version of the Agent Coulson from, uh, you know, the, the Marvel universe, you know, dressing sharp, all, have all kinds of cool gadgets and gear and toys and all these things, but not a main character. And so that, you know, I don't know that it would really fly, but I was just kind of curious to see what you thought about that. Nah, I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I'm okay I mean, with that. I mean, there, there, um, there are uh, elements of Marvel that kind of veer into a little bit of secret agent work, but um, you know, uh, I think here we are. In after all these years, I think Bond is still with us for a very good reason. Bond stays in his lane. You know, basically, yeah. you know, if you you know what you're going to get when you get a James Bond movie, and one of the things that really is never really stated much is these are family movies. I mean, you never see naked women, entirely naked women. You never, you never right. hear the F bomb. Uh, I think they want to keep their family audience. And I also think that there's enough garbage going on in the world that bond has enough missions to last for the next two centuries. You know, mm, you know I agree. We, we joke that bond is forever. I think it's true. I mean, if, 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 if I could, predict what series will still be playing in the 2100s it'll be james bond i think i tend to agree with you there's so much there that he can write that can be written about and for him and you know it's all and it's just in my opinion just comes down to making sure you have the right actor for it as long as you as long as he is cast properly it's not going to be a problem and i remember when people you know lost their hats when uh, daniel craig was uh appointed as the next bond because oh my god a blonde bond uh, bond what are we going to do you know i was one of those people i said who the heck is this guy and a blonde <laughs> give me a break i'll tell you after 10 minutes of watching casino royale my jaw dropped i said who is this guy and yeah. he just blew out blew out everything in that first movie and even though the movies have not been consistent uh he's been consistently great Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think I remember back when uh, Pierce Brosnan came in, I was nervous about him being Bond uh, because I remembered the only thing I really remembered Pierce Brosnan from, in all honesty, was Remington Steel when I was a kid. And I never liked that show. And I thought, oh, man, he's just going to do Remington Steel all <laughs> over the place. But he didn't. I thought he did really well with it. So Pierce, Pierce was great. I, I don't think the movies were as great, but I know he was better than the movies. He was much better than the movies. Yeah. Yeah. So one series I enjoyed reading was the Young Bond series. Uh, it was like his adventures and like the villains that he came across before becoming like an official agent. And like how even as a teen, he was clever and a little bit of a rebel. Uh, are, are you familiar with those? I'm not sure. I am not. I'm okay. kind of a little bit of a purist. I, in fact, I think I read one of the novels. Uh, published after Ian Fleming's death and or maybe two and I just didn't didn't uh, you know for it's like with the Twilight Zone you mm-hmm. asked me if I've seen all the color episodes and I just I just 
kind of disavow them. I, I black and Twilight Zone is black and white, and that's what I stick with, and that, I won't change. Uh, but with Bond, I haven't tapped into the young Bond ideas, although I had the idea a few years ago that if they were ever going to reboot, they could do an origin story of how James mm -hmm. Bond won his double O, which is kind of what Casino Royale is. I mean, Casino yeah. Royale is kind of a, is an origin reboot. Yeah, yeah, Casino Royale leading into Spectre, and yeah, there's all those have a very gritty beginning for him, yeah. So what would be like another character that you would like to see turned into like a young adaptation of a character? That's a very good question. Um, from the Bond series or anywhere? Anywhere or even sure. the Bond series, yeah. Our answer to that question is yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they did it well with Indiana Jones. I thought River Phoenix was wonderful in that part of yeah. the movie. Um, I would have to say uh, it would be hard for me to think of somebody. I mean, uh, we've seen we've seen all the superheroes kind of in a young fashion, kind of. I mean, young Spidey, uh, um, and we also saw the origin kind of in uh, Harrison Ford, uh, uh, you know, uh, Han Solo opening. I can't think of anybody off the off the top of my head. Uh, uh, but I will I will consider the thought. I mean, um, another one of my favorite characters is Marty McFly, but we meet him when he is young. So <laughs> right, <Yeah>. right. <laughs> kind of hard to jump back even farther. So exactly. okay, uh, or maybe maybe young uh, young Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> ah yes, how he developed the taste. So. <laughs> All right, so let's take a minute here. Um, I want to talk to you about another one of the books. It's a book that you co-wrote uh, called The Cat Who Lived with Anne Frank. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, so clearly this book is designed to help young ones learn to combat hate and make and, and develop a sense of acceptance and diversity. Um, but how did it come about and what's been the reaction to the book so far? Oh, it's a very interesting story. I mean, uh, I have a hobby. Um, I've been doing it since high school where I tape full movies on audio tape. I'm probably one of the few people in California now still making cassette audio tapes. I'm, I'm very much uh, a throwback, uh, but I would, I, you know, I play them when I'm shaving or, you know, dressing, whatever. I play them in the car. I'm always surrounded by movies. I am such a movie person. I mean, you know how they call potheads, you know, people who have marijuana constantly. Yeah. I'm kind of a movie head, you know, basically. I nice. Have to <laughs> we'll take that. So one day I was playing the 1959 George Stevens film, The Diary of Anne Frank. And, you know, I'd seen it several times. I mean, it's the classic story of, of the Jews hiding out in Amsterdam. And there's a mm -hmm. scene in the movie where Mushi the cat goes running through and they're chasing Mushi because they don't want to make a lot of noise. And I said to myself at that moment, what did the cat think of this weird situation of people <laughs> tiptoeing around in the daytime and never going outside? So my friend David Miller, who's a, just a wonderful children's book writer, I mean, I mean he's written uh, scripts and he's done video games and stuff like that. David and I are, are just bond, bond. In fact, he hired me. Uh, he used to run the Criterion Collection, the, the, the you know, the, um, the uh, outfit that makes the classic uh, films. Uh, on nice on Laserdisc and now Blu-ray. And uh, he hired me to do the first three James Bond movies on Laserdisc. So we had bonded then literally, uh, no pun intended. And uh, I brought it to David and he just loved the idea. 
of making a children's book uh, called The Cat Who Lived with Anne Frank and telling the story of the attic from Mushi's point of view. It's actually inspired an animated feature we've written, which would take the story to the next step. We follow Mushi outside of the attic and it becomes kind of a Lion King type animal story where oh, Mushi nice. joins the Dutch resistance against the uh, Nazis. But in our story, Metaphorically, it's the German shepherds and the Rottweilers that are patrolling the canals. So it's it's a great big fantasy uh, venture film that we we were out selling at the as we speak. But the book the book came out uh, from Penguin and uh, very very nice reviews, really nice reviews, and uh, people have been buying it for uh, their children to read. And it's kind of a it's not your typical bedtime reading. It's not about little bunnies and uh, you know, cats and mice, it's it's more historical, but the reaction we have gotten is really good because anything we can teach to young people about tolerance and anti-hate and racism is a good thing. And through the cat's eyes, we see the plight of the Franks and the Van Pelses as they struggle to survive. And we see a little bit of how Mushi might have uh, viewed it. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I, I, looked at, I looked at the book a little bit. Um, with the illustrations and I thought, you know, very well illustrated, very cute. Um, you know, so you got, you know, a tie in there for the, for the young ones. And I, and I saw a couple, a couple pictures that you guys have posted online and uh, cause we may have lightly stalked you on Twitter and um, sure. where, <laughs> where you had posted some pictures of you guys taking it to schools and things like that. And I, so I just wanted to say kudos to you guys for a, for writing the book B to making sure it got in the hands of young ones. So I think, I think that's an amazing thing. Well, thank you very much. And with a little luck, maybe we can get the movie going because the movie is quite an adventure. Yeah, I would be interested in seeing that. So I think that'd be cool. So we do need to take a minute here to discuss another one of your encyclopedias. That is, of course, the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. So through the writing of this book, you talk about the episodes, the writers, actors, and so forth. What is your favorite story that you stumbled upon about the Twilight Zone that you can share with our listeners? Hmm, that's a very good, very good question. I actually have a couple of different ways to answer that. I'll give you a story that uh, you could actually play the Twilight Zone theme in the background while I'm telling it. Because oh, yeah. um, part of my research was developing a very good relationship with Rod Serling's widow, uh, Carol. And one day I was over at Carol's because she would give me access to photographs and filings, all of the contracts, so I could actually tell you how much an actor made in an ep episode. And um, one day I was asking her about Rod's kind of work methodology. How did he work? What were some of his influences? How, and she said, well, you should take a look at this book. So she hands me a book off the shelf and it's a bound copy. It's a, it was published. It's a, a lot of his live TV shows from the, the live TV era where he first made a great impact with shows like mm -hmm. uh, Patterns and Requiem for a Heavyweight. So she says, take that home. The preface answers all your questions. So I brought it home. I held, I held it very tenderly in my hand. It was Rod's personal copy. I put it on my desk and I, I think I had to go to a dinner or something. So I had to come back to my desk to look at my book. I was really looking forward to it. It had vanished. It had completely <laughs> vanished into thin air. Nobody broke into the house. Uh, there was no earthquake that had bounced into a trash can. I looked for that book for three days and I never found it again. It's, that was probably five, six years ago. That is definitely a Twilight Zone type moment. But I'll, I'll give you another one. 
two, two and a half years ago, I went to a Twilight Zone symposium in Binghamton, New York, where Rod grew up. You know, they had all these panels and discussions, and I got to sell some books there. Uh, one of the guys I was hanging out with, um, uh, Nick, uh, and I remember his name in a second, who knew the neighborhood very well, took me to Rod Serling's house because I wanted to take a photograph in front of the house that Rod Serling grew up, grew up in. And uh, we took it, uh, the lady came out who owns the house, offered to take a picture of us standing in front of the house, which is great. I said, thank you and walked away. I'm looking at the photo later on, it's in black and white. Now you can't create a black and white photo on an iPhone unless you actually you know, set, the, set it for a black and white phone. Can you explain that? <laughs> That's weird. It was weird. But getting back to the book, um, there are a lot of great Twilight Zone stories I learned. I think, um, I mean, Cliff, uh, let's see. Uh, I think it was Cliff Robertson was coming out to be in one of his two episodes. It was either du the dummy where he plays the ventriloquist or it was the one where he's uh, the Western, uh, you know, person leading the wagon train uh, for the time travel episode, uh, 30 yards over the rim. Um, a hundred yards over the rim. And apparently he was kind of squawking. They wanted him on in on a Friday. They weren't going to shoot him till Monday. He mm -hmm. kind of, he kind of stood his ground, would not fly out on the day they wanted the plane. He was scheduled to fly out on flew into the Hudson and everybody on board was killed. So I thought that that was quite, quite something for Cliff Robertson. And then Cliff Robertson also said in an interview that when the nine 11 disaster took place in, in uh, New York city, he was flying his private plane over the city at that point. And he was right near all of that. So that was interesting. Uh, oh, very interesting. I also learned that Bob Cummings, who stars in the first episode of season two about uh, the B-25 plane in the desert, um, uh, that, uh, that his, his godfather was Orville Wright. And, oh, that's cool. And like uh, Cummings, who's playing the bomber pilot of a B-25 World War II bomber had one of the first private plane licenses in the United States. So in digging down into these people's lives and learning something about them was interesting. I also discovered that some of the people had some rather um, dark endings. Uh, hmm. uh, one of my favorite episodes, which was a challenging episode because uh, Paul Douglas, who played the baseball manager in the Mighty Casey episode, which was the baseball episode. Yeah. He died. He, he was dying throughout his play, uh, episode. And when they looked at the footage at the end of the footage, uh, after the end of the show, it, it, he looked awful. So they decided they had to reshoot it. And that's why Jack Warden was brought in to play the manager of the Hoboken Zephyrs. But the actor who played Casey, the baseball pitcher, who actually turns out to be a robot, he was involved in a manslaughter uh, or uh, some kind of altercation and ended up going to prison. I, oh, wow. He, he may still be in prison as far as I know. So there were some stories like that. And then Gig Young, who was in one of my favorite episodes, uh, Walking Distance, where he plays the burnt out advertising executive who, who takes his car into the shop and then walks down the, the road to his hometown. Um, he, he got very depressed killed his new wife and killed himself. So that was very sad, very sad. Yeah. Those stories, oh, wow. those, are those stories are tough. And then everybody, I, I tried to find everybody who was alive, who had been in a zone and I got some great interviews. The, the book is a good, um, 
companion with Mark Zakri's classic book from 82, The Twilight Zone Companion, which is the first book to really bring all the episodes in front of you. My book is more of a formal encyclopedia where there's literally an entry on everything involved zone-wise. Nice. So I think one of the most iconic scenes in all of Twilight Zone is the William Shatner scene in the play. There's something on the wing. Something on the wing. (laughs) That's the worst Shatner impression you're ever going to hear, by the way. (laughs) And you're welcome. That's one of my favorites. Uh, There's some great stories about that. uh, Nick Cravat, who played the creature on the wing, was a wonderful uh-huh. ac- acrobatic actor. He's well known as one of Burt Lancaster's best friends. If you saw a Burt Lancaster film from the 40s or 50s, he's usually partnered with Nick Cravat. I mean, Crimson Pirate, uh, Flame in the Arrow, those kinds of movies. Okay. Uh, uh, for, for, to, ca- to costume him as this gremlin... Uh, it wasn't the most inspired costuming. They went to Central Costumes and MGM and got a bear costume. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty Basically, bad. I, I, I think that the, um, the 1983 reboot where they made the feature film of, uh, of those four episodes, uh, the, I thought that they, they made a much better creature when they had the money to do a proper creature yeah. on the wing with the John Lithgow version of that. But um, there's another funny story that, this was directed, by the way, by Richard Donner. You know, went on to direct Superman and Lethal Weapon and yes. all those three films. Well, apparently, uh, uh, Donner, they were working on uh, the tank stage because not only did they have to have a big wind machines on that wing, but they had to have water. So it had to be done on the tank. And mm-hmm. one day, Richard Donner was walking over to get a cup of coffee and he heard a scream and he kind of came racing back to the set. And they looked down at the bottom of the tank, this concrete floor. And um, William Shatner was lying on the floor as if he had fallen and broken his neck and was dead. And people were freaking out. And then Shatner stood up and said, gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) Moments like that can be a little crazy. (laughs) That's a Richard Matheson episode. And Richard... um, Apparently was on an airliner looking at some clouds one day and thought he saw somebody skiing off a cloud. And I think that eventually became the idea for a nightmare at 20,000 feet. Nice. That's cool. That's awesome. So what are some like other iconic characters like William Shatner that became famous that we may not have known of in the Twilight series? Oh, sure. Well, uh, Robert Redford, who uh, had already oh. made some live TV performances. In fact, he had starred in uh, Rod's Holocaust drama, In the Presence of Mine Enemies, playing a young Nazi. Uh, So he comes into uh, the episode uh, and after watching, there's 156 episodes. So I have a, sometimes I forget the title of it, but this is the episode where the old lady's living in this condemned building and she gets a knock on the door and she's very fearful about the angel of death. And it's just, it's just a New York City policeman played by by uh, Robert Redford, and uh, uh, it's it's a great episode. And um, I think uh, Redford, I mean, in the history of Hollywood, is there a better looking actor when he first started out? I mean, Redford was the poster boy for poster boys. Also, Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson, early in his career, uh, 
the, the start of, I believe, the third season, episode two, with him and Elizabeth Montgomery playing an American and a Russian soldier in a, in a burned out town. That was a cool episode. And we didn't really know much about Bronson at that time. I mean, he'd done some films, but this is pre The Magnificent Seven, pre The Great Escape. Okay. Uh, He's great. And uh, let's see, um, just some other actors. I mean, uh, James Franciscus, who would later go on to be uh, Mr. Novak and uh, the one about the insurance executive. Uh, I forget the name of that one, but uh, he was in an episode with Nehemiah Persoff about a U-boat that's stalking a freighter. It turns out to be a ghostly U-boat, kind of a flying Dutchman story. There are wonderful actors all over the place, but not only do I do the lead actors, but I also, in my encyclopedia, talk about some of the supporting players who, mm-hmm. who really made those episodes great. And I still, to this day, maintain that in the history of television, there has never been a better cast show than The Twilight Zone. Yeah. All right, cool. So let's talk, let's go back to James Bond for a moment. And let's talk vehicles. Now, in every movie, James Bond, you know, he's the premise of the gentleman spy, always has the coolest of cars to drive around always has. I mean, if it's the coolest new thing on the block, James Bond has it and it's tricked out. However, my favorite vehicle in a James Bond movie is not a car. (laughs) Let me set the scene. So my buddies and I, after we got out of work one night, went to a late showing of the movie GoldenEye. And with Pierce Brosnan as Bond. And now there's a scene where Bond is chasing a car. In a tank. That's right. In a tank. He busts through the wall and he goes around. And he's following this guy in Russia, in Moscow, in a tank. Now, there weren't many people in the theater, thankfully, because I probably would have been thrown out because I was yelling at the screen, I want a tank! Give me Bond's tank! <laughs> so I was completely enamored by that. You see, I grew up, uh, uh, my best friends and I, we always grew up, we watched Bond like nonstop. We had the, one of my buddies, his family had the, the entire collection on VHS. And for the kids that are listening, those are old cassette tapes you'd put into a movie player and it'd play it and then you'd have to rewind it to watch it again. So anyway, uh, enough for the history lesson. But uh, so Steve, for you, what is, was there a favorite Bond vehicle that, you know, that would have made you yell at the screen? Maybe you did yell at the screen or as a civilized human being, this is just one that you wanted really badly. Well, I think uh, I, I could hit uh, the, um, the button for Goldfinger on most of those favorite moments, except for Bond girls. My favorite Bond girl is Claudine Auger from Thunderball. She played Domino. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's just the hottest hottie. Uh, but car-wise, the, the <laughs> Aston Martin, I still remember sitting in the Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, which is, by the way, a theater we did not go regularly. I think for Goldfinger, that Christmas 64 that was the thing to do, go up to Grauman's and see Bond. When, when Q, Q introduces the Aston Martin DB5, it's, you know, it just sends a chill up your spine. Oh my God, look at that car. And then his explanation of, of the various devices was just so cool. I mean, in those days, Bond was doing things that nobody did. I mean, they were very, I mean, it was the definition of cool. And uh, I have to, I always remember the final moment. He says, uh, Q says, now pay attention to this. Uh, there's a little red button. And it, if you push it, it'll engage and fire the, it passions your ejector seat. 
And Sean Connery looked at me and says, the jumped seat, you're joking. And he said, I, ne- I never joke about my work. <laughs> but, you know, the, the Aston Martin has kind of become the iconic Bond car. And it's come back through in the Daniel Craig yeah. series. It's kind of a... It's it's kind of a quaint car now when you look at the more modern oh, sure. Martins, et cetera. But uh, I'll tell you, uh, I think probably toy wise, the original was a big collectible for years, and mm-hmm. not, nothing has quite done the same for it. I mean, I, I admire the new Aston Martins; they're very very nice. But just something the impact of that car with the revolving number plates, the bulletproof screens, the machine guns, the oil slick, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the, uh, what was it? Uh, the smoke screen. Yeah, no, it was just very cool. I mean, everything Bondi in those days, the gadgets, you know, they were selling the briefcase from, from Russia with love with the folding rifle. And yeah, and, uh, they had, um, there was a funny story about Thunderball. If you recall in Thunderball, Q gives him a rebreather, a little device he puts in his mouth with little tanks on it and good for four minutes, which Bond uses quite a bit because it, it fits into a convenient pocket. And of course, Bond has a convenient pocket. And uh, apparently when Thunderball came out, the British Navy sent an, uh, somebody to get in touch with the art department because they wanted to supply their underwater troops with that rebreather and they had to be informed, sorry, it's just a prop. It doesn't really exist. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, Steve, we have we have very much enjoyed this conversation. Uh, and as we come to our, the conclusion of it, one of the things we like to do with, with each of our guests um, before we let you get out of here is we want to play a quiz with you. Okay. Now, this is, this is going to be a 100% James Bond-centered quiz. We're going to test your knowledge since you're, you know, wrote the whole encyclopedia and such. Please, so, don't, please don't ask me uh, the caliber of guns or uh, nope. no, that, that's a toughie. And uh, uh, what's the other area? Well, license plate numbers have always been not a good. No, nope. no, we're good there. We're not going to ask you, Are you of those start, questions. Start easy and work your way up or I make uh, no promises. Okay. All right. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm a, I'm a big Jeopardy watcher. So I'll pretend I'm on Jeopardy. All right, cool. Now here's the thing though. There's five questions. If you get three of them right, we're going to send you one of our Red Shirt Widows and Orphans coffee mugs. Okay? I love it. That's great. That's fabulous. If, if you get all five right, uh, actually, if you get four out of five right, we're going to send you the mug, and we'll send you this book, which is Drayton Allen's book. Drayton Allen is the, the, the founder of our Funny Science Fiction Group. He's an author, and he wrote that book. Uh, it's kind of a, got a little bit of a Star Trek lean to it, which is, of course, where the Red Shirts uh, comes from. So... Now, of course, there has to be a consequence if you don't get at least three right. The consequence is we take a picture of your face, we make a meme out of you, we post it to our group. <laughs> Do you agree with these terms and conditions, sir? I agree. I, I'm going to jump into it full, full frontal. All right. Do it. All right, Nick, hit him up. What was the name of the estate that Ian Fleming wrote the James Bond books at? These, will be, these are multiple choice, by the way. I All forgot right. to tell you that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was either Fleming Acres, Goldeneye, or Moonraker, and you got it. <laughs> oh, I, did he say Goldeneye? I didn't hear him. Yeah, he said it like right after I... Oh, well, <laughs> this might not be as difficult as I thought it was going to be. All right, you might just go five for five. All right, so in which book was James Bond killed? Was it Thunderball, Dr. No, 
or from Russia with love? I would say from Russia with love. Correct. Yeah. Dr. Noah, he was brought back to life. Right. People don't realize, by the way, that uh, Fleming was so upset with his book sales, he killed off Bonin from Russia Love and was not going to pick up the pen again. Raymond Chandler, the great American detective thriller author, who was a good friend of Fleming's, told him to keep it, keep it going. And that's why he's brought back in Dr. No. Oh, interesting. That's cool. So who was the first actor to play James Bond? Barry Nelson on TV, 1954. Wow. All right. Man, I thought that was going to... My favorite part about that one is that he wasn't even James Bond in that. He was Jimmy Bond because he was an American. Card sense, Jimmy Bond. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, that, uh, that, sir, earned you a coffee mug. So you get that. All right. So which Bond film has won the most Academy Awards? The Man with a Golden Gun, Skyfall, or Dr. No? Skyfall. That's right. Five of them, in fact. Uh, in 2012. So that gives you the coffee mug and Nick will show you your other prize because he has it right there, the book. You get them both. So hang on after we're all done here. We'll get your, your uh, mailing address and all that fun stuff so we can send those, those off to you. And to see if you can go five for five. Just for Nick, funsies. <laughs> this is who, for funsies at this point, yes. Who is the only actor to drop a meme during the gun barrel opening sequence? Was it David Niven? Barry Nelson, or George Lazenby? I'm going to say George Lazenby. Yes. That's correct. And fun fact, all of these actors only played Bond once. Right, I have one more question. I'm going to throw it at you because you hit all these other ones. So if you could get those, you'll get, I'm, I have confidence that you'll get this. Who played Bond more often? Was it Sean Connery or Roger Moore? Uh, it's a tie. They both did seven. Yeah, dang, you're good at this. All right. Well, I guess if you write an encyclopedia about something, you better have some knowledge. And here's an interesting fact I discovered. Did you know that the first five James Bond movies were released alphabetically? Huh. Dr. No, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, and You Left It Twice. Uh, yeah, my, uh, that's a little bit of mind blown right there. I had no clue. <laughs> I was just going to try and stump. I was trying to stump you with that, you know, a little bit of a trick question because it, you know, on that uh, bonded more question because, yeah, the answer is seven, even though Connery's last film was an unofficial Bond movie. Right, right. So um, never still say never. James Bond, and I, I think UA's now acquired that film, so even though it wasn't produced officially, it's now part of their canon. Yes, I agree. So, no, that's well, yeah. So, guys, if you know. If you haven't had an inclination that you need to go get the James Bond encyclopedia, uh, I think Steve just proved the fact that that's a book that you need to own um, <laughs> because clearly he did his research and getting to this point, not only as a fan, but as, as an author. And then you'll want to check out his uh, Twilight Zone books as well. I will I will say to your uh, listeners, um, uh, there's a famous bookshop in Los Angeles called Larry Edmonds Movie Bookshop. It's kind of like the uh, center for all movie knowledge. And I have a little promotion going with them that uh, if you want a signed copy of my book, uh, go to LarryEdmonds.com and that's E-D-M-U-N-D-S. And uh, you can order the book and then I go down there and I sign it specifically to the people who order it. So you don't that's have- awesome. You don't have to go into a store. You can socially distance from home. Just order the book, and 
it's also available on Amazon and all the usual book sites, and it's in the stores. Uh, the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia as well, also carried at Larry Edmonds. Well, I have, uh, I have Facebook presence. Uh, the James Bond Movie Encyclopedia, uh, the official title, is on. it has a page on Facebook. I have my own page, Steve Rubin. I also do a lot of posting. I, I publish uh, This Day in James Bond Movie History usually twice a week, and... Um, uh, in fact, today I'm posting Der uh, Der uh, Derek Metting's birthday. Derek Metting's was one of the great special effects guys who did a lot of the miniatures in the early Bond movies. Uh, so yes, I have those uh, presents. I have presence on Instagram. I have presence on LinkedIn. And I, I don't tweet much, uh, but I have a Twitter presence. All right, we will make sure we put those descriptions down below so that everyone else can find those. All right, cool. Yeah, no, and, and guys, we need you to remember that subscribing is the single most important thing that you can do to make sure that we get more get amazing guests like Steve. We get to have these cool stories and background information and some funny moments for you to listen to, to laugh to, and, and, and enjoy your day with. So please subscribe if you haven't already. And also go check out Steve's work because he's got some really cool stuff, not just what you're seeing here. We, you were going to say something, Steve? Uh, no, I was just going to say how much fun it was with you guys. I can see why you have a successful podcast because it's just, uh, you guys are a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And you know, guys, if you're not happy with the content, if, if you're not having fun, like Steve has been having fun and you're not happy with the content of our videos, just let us know. And we're going to have Steve here, get us in contact with that bond villain jaws. And he's going to eat through <laughs> your fiber cables at home. No more internet means no more issues. You're all set. <laughs> Well, thanks again, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for being here. Bye. All right, everybody. Thanks for watching. Bye. Our show is brought to you by our charity sponsor, the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund. Imagine the comfort that you'll give Red Shirt Crewman number 002. And you'll know that when he puts on the red shirt and sent on a training mission to evade British SAS patrols and penetrate the radar installations on Gilbertar, getting shot six minutes into episode 14, that he didn't leave his family destitute and without hope because the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund has his back and three fingers. But none of his toes. On behalf of the rest of the hosts of Funny Science Fiction, we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to be a guest on one of our future episodes, please contact us by means of our Facebook group, Funny Science Fiction. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram using the handle at funny sci-fi, or you can go to draytonallen.com and click the contact me link at the bottom of the page. Thanks again. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Copyright 2020 by Drake Allen. Original music by Jordan Michaels. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned in this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation of or by funny science fiction or its sponsors. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. If you have questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at DraytonAllen at DraytonAllen.com.